0: Let's start with prayer, and um, and we'll climb in. Lord, we appreciate our time together tonight. We look forward to climbing into a familiar story and uh, seeing new things and um, fresh things, true things that uh, change us and grow us. Lord, I pray that we'll be arrested with the gospel tonight and to see your fingerprints all over the ages and... Um, over stories that uh, we may have heard all our lives and just never recognized your your plan and your design and your purpose, and um, just pray that we can just dig into those riches tonight and that you'll find us enjoying them, not just in an academic sense, but in fact in a place that finds a home first in our heads and then migrates to hearts and then hands and mouths and homes and dinner tables and cubicles and neighborhoods and just relationships that they ought to invade. Lord, we pray that as a result of that, that you'll be glorified and that you'll be enjoyed, you'll be savored, and um, we pray these things in uh, the sweet name of Christ. His name we pray, amen. Okay, a couple things I want to begin with. First of all, I want to encourage you to, uh, if you've been working on Psalm 107, to keep after that. If you're finished with it and you think, hey, this is close enough, then fire it away to me. We're Fire it to me. We've got, I think, six, five or six, something like that online now. And it's in. if you want to check them out, there on our website. In the top right-hand corner, there's a little section that says Family Worship. And we've got Psalm 107s there. We've got Shepherds' Guides on there. So if each week you're, man, I, I forgot to get a Shepherds' Guide, or I didn't get one in the mail or, or in my email, you can get on there and print that out. Those... Um, those Psalm one oh sevens there there's a purpose there. It's out loud worship. You know, Steve preached this was probably a year ago, and I think we were in it may have been longer than that, because we were I was in Kazakhstan with um, Hayden and when you preached and talked about the public nature of the cross, yeah, you know, worship is public too. You know, it's just it's not a private matter any more than the cross was private. And we're so private in our American North American you know, western sort of lives, but the people of God are to be different. And you have to check motives there. See, that's the fear. I think people are really concerned about motives, not want to say, hey, check me out. I'm so pious and so religious. And it's not about that. (laughs) It's just about about an out loud enjoyment of God. And um, if the only place you sing is when you're with the people of God, then you're not enjoying Him out loud. You know, that's that's evangelism more so than a scheme or a plan or, you know, a design or a program. Evangelism is just the people of God saying, okay, what we do here corporately, now we're going to invade Monday and Thursday and, you know, with that. And we're not going to neuter our speech. You know, we're not going to alter our enjoyment of Christ. In fact, we're just going to keep what, what happens in here ongoing so that's all some that psalm 107 is so and the kind of cool thing is too i think is that your families will be able to look back at it and go man that was a time that our family walked through and recorded little egypts god has brought us out of and it's a something that you can refer back to and enjoy together as a family so i also want to uh just share with you briefly if you've worked on the shepherd's guide this week you know uh, I'm going to start embedding some things in the shepherds' guide to kind of test you. Yeah, probably not to test you, but just it's just kind of the 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 uh, nature of these shepherds' guides and the need to communicate. Um, But I want you to see this a biblical resource. What I've what I've had you do each every day this week is to read Nehemiah eight one through eighteen. It's really the sermon continued. I just couldn't go there. It was just too much for us to gnaw on on Sunday to go to Nehemiah also. But verses 1 through 18, the reason I've had you read the same verses every day is because that is one of the best study techniques that you will ever learn if you just read a passage over and over and over again because it begins to get in you. You begin to get in it and you discover things that you've never seen before. You start to ask questions you've never asked before. I remember a conversation that I had with my kids over the dinner table about a passage that we had read that day or they had been studying. They said, well, we already know that story. I said, wait a minute. (laughs) That's talking about the Bible like it's a novel or a movie. I've seen that movie. The Bible is living. That's the difference between a Grisham novel and the Word. A Grisham novel, while everybody enjoys a good fictional novel, it's not alive. It's not going to change you, and it doesn't continue speaking. While well, you can go back and revisit it, you, know, you may be one of those kinds that likes to read a novel over and over again. It just does not deliver a new truth, a new deep life-changing truth time and time again. But the Word is different. So that's why I've had you do this over and over again this week. But if, if you looked at the Shepherd's Guide, you know on Monday I made the announcement through one of these points here. And I wanted to share it again tonight and share it on Sunday. That in January, we're going back to one service. This uh, chapter begins, it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. I think guys uh, probably a year ago now that we went back to two services. And um, we were just busting at the seams in one service. This is before we planted our commerce church. And, um, you know, it just seemed like the thing to do, it was really i don't i don't i don't know if it was god's will or not you know it's just the sky, clouds didn't part we believed at the time it was the right thing to do uh but we want to be sensitive to what god is showing us and right now there's a just a regular weekly heartbreak in seeing um I, you know for example steve and his family are in the first service and then seeing, knowing that Steve is an elder, and then seeing a whole new group of people coming in here and sitting at the table of the second service and knowing that the two don't meet, breaks my heart for Steve and for the people because y'all need him and he needs to be with y'all. And seeing two sincere, very sincere, earnest groups of people over the course of the morning, one at 9 and one at 1040 or 10.45, both there ready to dine, both loving community, loving the Lord, but then seeing them like two ships passing in the night and us not doing something about that when we can, it just seems ridiculous. I, when, it, when the thought kind of started occurring to us, we started talking about it and it was kind of like, hey man, we're all kind of feeling that way right now, the elders. And um, you know, again, it's not like the clouds parted. I'd like to say that it'll never be a solution. It's hard for me to imagine that it could be a solution again someday. But I know right now, or we really feel right now with all confidence that we can muster right now that it's not a solution right now. Not that there's this big problem. You know, I don't really feel like we're dying or anything like that. I feel like we're healthy people. But um, in January, we're going to go back to one service, and we're just going to reckon with the space issues when they happen. Um, People have to learn to scoot to the middle. People have to learn to park at the bank. But if our worship is based on convenience, then it's probably not worship from the outset, even before we step foot in the building. You know, you think about that. If that's what drives you and that is how you're kind of modified and controlled there, it may not be worship in the first place. It might kind of be tokenism, kind of like Cain was guilty of. Ah, this is kind of a convenient offering. Here you go, God. And God said, I'll not even look on that offering. I don't know if, if, if a convenience-driven thing is actually even worship or not. So while I care about where, whether we have a seat or not, I think we all do. Um, we're just not going to let this this convenience thing own us. So uh, one service starting in January, and um, there will be more details to follow as we kind of work out, out the details as we move in that direction. If we outgrow this facility, then maybe it will be mobile, mobile worship every Sunday until Either we plant a church, another one, (laughs) that's a space remedy, or we build a building, which is a remedy. It's not the silver bullet. Uh, I think we have probably about 29,000 in that building account now, which, you know, we're on our way to having at least the first phase taken care of for a, a foundation. So, you know, I don't think it's one or the other, I think it's both and, but We'll see as as we go. We just know what isn't the answer. And the answer isn't for us to worship in shifts when we don't have to. So um, if any of you typically worship corporately at 9 and have difficulty with that or need to wrestle with that or talk through that, just know that me and Steve are here tonight. Uh, The other elders are available. So if you want to chew on some of that and on some of that, we'll be glad to do it. Okay. All right, let's climb into our study tonight. We'll see how far we get. I'm hoping that we can finish chapter six, not that it's a, a race to get there or anything like that. Um, but just for the sake of kind of closure, last Wednesday was really pretty important in where we're going tonight. It was kind of the bird's eye view of the flood account and uh um, trying to think of somebody that might. Steve, do you know your way around that board back there at all? Can you turn me down? I feel like I'm having to whisper in order to not shout at y'all, and uh, I don't want to do that. Thank you, Steve. I want to just share a couple of brief review uh, notes before we finish up chapter six. Uh, First of all, let's look at chapter six, verse five. Here's the situation. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, that's the situation. Basically, we've got some severe wickedness. Uh, over the course of time, mankind has grown so wicked and so evil that God has actually grieved in his heart over the wickedness of mankind. But then when you look back, you've read it already, but you look back and now you see it in context. In chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 29 It says, and called his name Noah, this is a guy that came down from Seth's line, and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That's the context for this whole story. Mankind is wicked, God is going to send a flood, but out of this cursed earth, God has raised up another man, a man named Noah, to be a guy that he preserves a remnant through. Okay, so that's that's the overall bird's eye view context A few of the couple things that that we hit last week that I wanted to just reiterate is um uh, there are in every other continent there's a version of a worldwide flood story uh the 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 african uh continent or the continent of africa is that's not a whole continent but africa i think is the whole or is the area where there's not a real pronounced story, although there are some stories that point toward a worldwide flood. But every other continent has a very clear version of a worldwide flood. We talked about that a little bit last week. First of all, I just want to point you to the Mesopotamian accounts. The Mesopotamian accounts would be the run, the ones that are kind of nearest to the, um, the nation of Israel, They're, or at least the promised land. There's a Sumerian account with a, a hero named Zyestra, an old Akkadian account, With a hero Atrahasis, and then this is probably the most famous account, and one that you may have heard of, a Babylonian account through a guy named uh, uh, Utnapishtim, the Gilgamesh epic, and that's a, a writing that some people have had to read in English lit classes or things like that. The Gilgamesh account. Now, here's some things that differ between. Gods, Our story that we're looking at and these Mesopotamian stories, those are the ones that are closest to our story. But here's the difference. The gods in these stories, these three Mesopotamian stories, wanted to send a worldwide flood because of two reasons. Because of overpopulation and because mankind was just a little bit too noisy for them. Okay, so really, if you think about it, that's a pretty petty god. I hope you would agree that those Mesopotamian accounts, those gods of those floods are pretty petty. However, Yahweh's reason for sending the flood is because of the wickedness of mankind, and it seems like a much more reasonable rationale. And I think as as we go, the reason I bring those things back up again, those three accounts, uh, we're not going to look at them in detail. I'm just going to refer to them as the Mesopotamian accounts or maybe the Babylonian account, is because as we go, I want to just kind of show little brief glimpses of how they differ, how these gods of these little um, Mesopotamian accounts are different from Yahweh. And the reason I'm doing that is so you can see this robust picture of the Yahweh story. So you can have more faith that this Bible is true and that the accounts there can, are worth dying for, <laughs> are worth being martyred for, that you can trust that this is the truth. I think it's kind of cool that they show up in every continent, and we talked about this a little bit last week, One of the things that's really neat about them showing up in every continent from an apologetics point of view is that the fact that they show up in every continent would be very difficult for Charles Darwin to explain. I mean, think about it. Say, hey, Charles, tell me how these continents, if if we're just going to talk about evolution, how would that be explained in evolution where every continent has a version of it? And instead of diminishing this account in the Word, it actually bolsters the account. The fact that it showed up on every continent suggests that that's a true story. It really happened. Now, for every mile that it moved, maybe through the story of Babel, or every year that went by where it wasn't record, recorded, the story diminished more and more and more. The further you get away from the Holy Land, the weirder the story gets, although the stories that are pretty close to the Holy Land are pretty weird in themselves, and I'll show you some of those contrast. I want to show you those so you see them as we go along, so you can adore your Bible more in that it is your foyer to fellowship with the living true God, that this is the real deal. And you can enjoy hearing about Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh epic and Utnapishtim and stuff like that, knowing that those probably came from the true story, but they were passed through a bunch of Boy Scouts through that little exercise where you turn to one Boy Scout and tell them a story and then you ever? I brought that up last week. What's that called? Gossip. Gossip? Yeah, there's there's a, a little exercise. Yeah, what's it called? Telephone. Telephone. Where you lean over to one kid and you tell them a story and then they pass it all the way around the circle. And then once it gets back to the end, you have them share the story again. And it is so mutated and distorted that it's, it's hard to. But there might be little glimpses of the original story in there. So let's start with. Um, For the sake of context, I want to read chapter 6 up to verse 9, but verse 9 is where we're going to start low crawling tonight. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From this point on through the rest of the chapter, we're just going to kind of low crawl. First of all, I want to address the issue of righteousness. It says that Noah was righteous. That word is used throughout the Bible to kind of be a combination of piety and ethics, And I realize that that those are words that we don't use very often, so let me kind of convert them into more familiar terms. It would be combining practice and principle. That this guy is whole and true and right, um, and that his practice is fueled by principle. Keep your finger right there and turn over to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Remember, it says, Noah was a righteous man. I'm going to throw a little fly in that ointment and see what you think. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The the satellite of Noah being righteous is easy to digest. I mean, we heard that story growing up, right? And I think the satellite of this, of the wickedness of man, is pretty easy to digest, but when you look at those satellites both at the same sitting, that's when things get a little bit complicated. It says Noah was righteous, but then it says no one's righteous, no, not one. It doesn't say no one's righteous, no, not one, but then there's Noah. So how do you reconcile that? What do you think? Okay, he reckons him righteous? Okay. All right. Why? That's a good answer. It's a good answer. Sacrifice. Sacrifice? Okay. The Mhm. Right. 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 In, in that it's not saving. Right. Man's righteousness even if you met the law. Yeah. The man's righteousness is filthy rags, that sort of picture compared to the righteousness of God. Anybody have any other thoughts? Good. Yeah. Good. Imputed righteousness. Anybody ever heard that term, imputed righteousness? It's like somebody having a big syringe and say, okay, all right, come here, wicked one. Let me inject this righteousness in you. Now, that's a physical picture. This is a very spiritual image. Yeah, Brian. hmm Good. God. You're 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 God. That's good. I like that. They're kind of bookends, yeah. We'll look at blameless and him walking with God in a minute, but that's that's a good picture, kind of in, looking at it in context. I think that, that Hebrews has got some answers for us, too. And I think this will help crystallize a few things for you in trying to figure out how these Old Testament guys could be saved. You know, if, if no one comes to me except or no one comes to the Father except through the Son, how and, and the Son was born on Beth, in Bethlehem two thousand years ago, then how do how are these old testament guys who were reckoned righteous, how are they saved? Look at Hebrews chapter ten, verse fourteen. I wanna show you just a couple of pictures here to help you. And it's not real tidy. I just want to give you a warning. I don't have a real tidy little system for you. But I have one word that I think that you can land on and live on when it comes to answering that question. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, By a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I think that what that's pointing to is the power of the cross being not just an instrument and I'm careful using that word because I don't want to just sound like a tool, but not just an event, not just a, uh, a work that gathers people geographically from the four winds. If you remember our study there a few months ago, the power of the cross that's people gathering from the four winds, not just a geographic gathering, but also a chronographic gathering over time, and not just from Christ onward. It goes back and captures everybody over the ages. Now, that's, that's just crazy. I mean, you think about that cross being, it's not bound to time. A cross is so big, and if you think that who died on that cross was a creator, he, if time is a creature, then certainly the creator is not going to be bound to something that he's created. He's bigger than that, and this work of the cross is so big that it goes back and it captures all those over the ages that have engaged God, and here, here is how Noah engaged God. It may be on the same page for you. Chapter seven, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse seven, "By faith, Noah, being warned by God, concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household." By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That is the thing. Righteousness comes by faith. The just shall live by what? Faith. That's what Martin Luther's whole um, Protestant movement was born out of. The study of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 or something like that. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's, that's where you got to land, this picture of faith. And understanding that Noah was faithful to God as the truth was revealed to him. God commanded him to do some things. God commanded him to respond a certain way. And man, he followed through. So it wasn't a work-saving thing. It was a faith-saving thing, just like faith for us. Okay? That was just a little tangent, but it's a tangent worth taking. Because basically, the thing you need to understand is that nobody floats. We can so potentially look at this story of Noah and go, oh, good people float, bad people sink. And then we think, oh, well, we're good people. Oh, we'll, we'll float. And we've got to realize that no one's righteous, no, not one. And that Noah was good because of faith. He was reckoned righteous. He's good because, God, he, because his goodness was wool to his being a sheep. You understand that picture? It did not make him a sheep. He was one of the people of God, so that's just the way he responded. I know that's difficult to get your head around. It's difficult for me to even explain. It's difficult for me to get my head around, but it's worth chewing on and thinking about and talking about. Okay, it says he's blameless. Let's talk about that word. That word makes it sound like he's never sinned. If you think about it, blameless. What you need to realize is that word actually in the Old Testament, go back to Genesis chapter 6, that's where we are in in verse 9. It says, he's righteous and he's blameless in his generation. That word blameless means complete and whole. It means wholehearted commitment and wholeness of relationship. Kind of a slang version or the, I don't know, my version would be he's all there. It means he's all there. That's what blameless means. It doesn't mean that he was without sin. And in fact, David actually uses the same term in referring, referring to himself of being blameless. Was David blameless in terms of being sinless? What was David? Two things that ought to come to mind immediately. He was Well, three things. He's a man after God's own heart, yes. But what two glaring things would say, Ooh, that doesn't make you really at least sinless? Adulterer and murderer. So this does not mean without sin, it means wholehearted, it means all there. So when, when you see this picture of righteousness and blamelessness together, it paints Noah as wholly committed to the Lord. I'm trying to remember who sung this song when I was a young man, hopelessly devoted to you. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, I knew we had some fans in here. But as I was writing these, I was thinking about that song. Hopelessly devoted to you. Cheesy. But the, the picture behind that is that's Noah in regards to the Lord. Hopelessly devoted. Okay, what else do you see here about Noah? Brian mentioned it a minute ago. What's, what's the third thing? He's righteous, blameless, and what else? He walked with God. Okay. Who else walked with God? Who? Yeah, Adam did, just kind of walking in the garden, cool of the day. But who's actually presented as specifically walking with God? Enoch. Enoch, that's right. Enoch, and Enoch is in the same line as Noah. You see the connection? Which line is that? If there's the Canaanite line and the Sethite line, which line is that? The Sethite line, exactly. So there's a connection there in that they both walked with God, and um, they are of the seed of the woman. Remember that the whole picture in Genesis is kind of contrasting the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. If you read that whole book, the book of Genesis, in that point of view, then then you start to see these things kind of emerge. Okay, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this also kind of links him to to Adam, who also had three prominent sons. Now, Noah, I mean, excuse me, Adam and Eve probably had a lot of kids. I mean, their job was to populate. And the fact that Cain had a woman to marry indicates that Adam and Eve had a daughter. You may not like that thought, but there was no one else. So it would have been his sister. But there's three prominent sons, and that would be Cain, Abel, and Seth. And then here there's also three sons. There's kind of a connection there. This picture presents Noah as the head of the family. That's going to be key in this story, this role of family. You're going to see family and household all over this story which if you've been here these last few months, weeks, you know that there's a very strong emphasis in teaching and in preaching and in Bible study for family and shepherds and the responsibility of the shepherds to engage their families. And this this story reinforces that big time. There's also in these three sons kind of a foreshadowing of the destiny of a new mankind through these three men. Okay, let's look at Verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it, just kind of emphasizing that word there, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. While Noah is pretty shiny, and I think you could consider, we'll we'll talk about actually next week, that his family actually is pretty shiny too. There's some other passages that point to his family not riding his coattails completely. They were certainly in kind of the umbrella of covenant that God made with Noah. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth had some, uh, some, some level of righteousness in, in themselves. But while Noah and his, and his family are pretty shiny, the earth is pretty dark. It says that here uh, it was corrupt. In the original language, actually what it's pointing to is that it had become corrupt immediately what I thought of was the second law of thermodynamics. You know what that is, right, Jeff? I know we, Jeff and I talk about that all the time. No, I'm being facetious. The uh, second law of thermodynamics is, is um, this, this, this uh, state of, this thing called entropy, where things move from a higher state of order to a lower state of order, like a, a job site or a desk or a cubicle or a, a mom's car. Christy's car is can be perfect one day and look like a bomb went off in of it, and the next day, entropy moves really fast on her car. She's not here to defend herself, so I can tell on her. But entropy is this reality: things don't go from a high, from a lower state to a higher state; they go the other way around. And that's what's happened here: the Earth has become corrupt, and this is true spiritually as well. There's spiritual entropy. And that's why something else has got to happen, some sort of intervention has got to happen in man that's got to happen from another place. And the whole picture of John 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, how are you doing all these great tricks? And Jesus doesn't even really answer his question. He says, In order to see the kingdom of God, you must be reborn. Now, we've read this, you must be born again. In the original language, what that says is you must be reborn from above It's got to take some sort of external influence to arrest this process of entropy. And that's the natural direction that things move. And that's the case here. The earth has moved into this place of corruption. And the word corrupt, this word corrupt actually occurs seven times in this story. It would be a pretty good picture of complete corruption. Remember what seven means, kind of a picture of fullness. Complete corruption. The word means spoiled corruption and disfigured. Okay, and it says that things are so bad that the earth was filled with violence. Let me give you a little definition of violence. When we hear violence, we think about somebody hurting somebody physically. But this definition even opens it up a little bit more. Here's the definition of violence: the cold-blooded infringement of the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate, often taken on physical violence and brutality, but not always. It can take on other forms that aren't physical at all. The earth was filled with this. I don't know what it was like, but as I read the newspaper now, or as we watch TV, watch the news, it looks like a lot of the same kind of thing. I don't know that things are any different now than they were then, except for Christ. It says all the earth is corrupt. That's why I emphasize that word, it, in verse 12 and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt this whole earth if corrupt means spoiled and disfigured then it means that all the earth is spoiled and disfigured and why is that we're talking about the earth why is it it's it's obvious but we got to get it out there we got to connect these dots why is the earth corrupt and disfigured because of man's sin exactly there there are, are creation consequences When man sins, it infects all of creation. I mean, think about this. What are some of the most polluted areas in the world that you can think of? Exactly. The slums, the cities that are just people just gorging in these cities. And there's pollution, there's trash, there's crime, there's wickedness. All of that stuff kind of goes all hand in hand, if you think about it. This order, it all fits into that same context. So uh, I, as I was thinking about this, it's the, the, I, here's some notes that I made. that The dirtiest and most polluted places in, in the world have the highest concentration of corruption and wickedness. So the people of God should have a different environment. I think there's a temptation for us to just be so spiritual sometimes that we don't connect the physical with the spiritual. And I think this is a little dot that I want to connect and just encourage you to realize. I think that where the people of God gather, that things ought to be nice and clean and tidy. Because I I just can't help but think that a church that's trashy physically is going to be a representation that something else is going on spiritually if there's a bunch of trash lying around. Now, that could very quickly become a work where we're like, oh, become legalistic about it. There's a bit gum wrapper. We're going to, you know, we're wicked. I don't take that too far. But I think that the people of God, our area, where the people of God gather, where the people of God live, that we shouldn't have a couch in our front yard. I mean, I moved mine out last week. I was so convicted about this. Shouldn't have a Chevy up on blocks, you know. I think, really, even connecting dots here, I cannot tell you how often I have to pick up trash out here in the yard or in this field out here in the the parking lot. And I've seen cross-point people walk over trash after worship service, step over trash to go out and get in their car. Because the paradigm is, well, somebody else does that. Somebody else probably paid to do that. I just go here. But the people of God say, no, this is our place. This is where people of God hang out. That ain't the pastor's job. That's all our job. We all have dominion over this place. And, you know, I don't want this to sound like a pet peeve because at, no, at no point was I going, well, let me go pick that up, self-righteous trash-picker-upper. It's not that. It's just, hey, this is where the people of God are. Our flower beds ought to look good, look like life. You know, our place ought to be picked up. Our area ought to be picked up. Our yards ought to be a reflection of our hearts and our lives. And that the physical is Connected to the spiritual, because creation is being redeemed along with man. Just like the corruption of man infects the earth, the redemption of man affects the earth. So the, the, they're connected, and that you can take that too far. But I think there've been some things that have taken it away from we, we've 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 underemphasized the physical things, and maybe at the I mean at the expense of emphasizing the spiritual, we've underemphasized the physical. And uh, they go together. You know, they're connected to each other. Again, that's not a pet peeve, trust me. So if you step over a piece of trash, that's okay, I'll pick it up. (laughs) Um, I'll tell you something else too that's interesting. After the flood, there's a new provision to put the fear of man in animals. Keep your finger right here in chapter 6 and look over at chapter 9 verse 2, and realize that that here in chapter 9, verse 2, the flood has already happened. Okay, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to connect the dot here for you in a minute, but I want you to see this verse. Chapter 9, verse 2. I'll look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. There's a cultural mandate. And then verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. It seems to be since there's this emphasis of dominion now even a greater level of dominion of man over animal and where animal is even afraid of man that apparently animals had even transgressed their boundaries because it wasn't just man that was guilty and wicked it says all flesh so in some weird way it's almost like the animals were i don't know if they are goring humans or running in people's houses or There's this weird boundary, almost, that they've transgressed because there's this emphasis later that they're going to be afraid of you. And in this passage, realize, in verse 12, it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Even the critters were corrupted. Things were so bad. Okay? My Jack Russell proves that uh, even there is a little bit of corruption in animal kind, even to this day, a little wild banshee. Okay, look at verse 13, chapter 6. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Something that's interesting, I told you we were going to contrast these, these Mesopotamian stories with our story. While God speaks to Noah, the gods of the Babylonian flood, and their little stories, their little versions, keep their plans a secret so that everybody will be killed. We don't want anybody to know. We're going to send this flood. But our God, Yahweh God, shares His will and His plan with His people. And if it's in character with the God that we see in the rest of the Bible, I can't help but think that Noah preached while he's working on that ark. I can't help but think and expect that he must have preached. God reveals His plan and His will to His people. Now, how he heard from God... We don't know, but we do know that he walked with God. We don't know if it was like this audible sort of relationship. But we hear him just as truly in the pages of this book, through the teaching and preaching and the study of this book. And the cool thing is, is just as Noah risked all, based on this word from God, this walking with God sort of relationship, where God revealed to him the truth, just as Noah risked all, This word today creates martyrs who are also willing to to risk all. There are people dying all over the world for this story and this truth and this God right now. And the word will do that. Quippy emails. And you may think I'm picking on those kind of things. I just want the people of God to see that for what it is. Quippy, shallow emails, funny jokes, they don't make martyrs. They just don't. But the Word of God will make martyrs. The Word of God will make ark builders. And that's the thing that we ought to be focusing on as we study, as we teach. As shepherds, as we're engaged in our homes, you can be nice to your kids, but if you're not engaging them with the Word of God, you're not equipping them for glory. You're not creating a bunch of little ark builders. The Word of God will do that. You might be equipping a martyr. You may not want to do that, but it's a good thing. This is an early picture of the relationship between God and His people. He speaks and we listen. The people of God, if someone was to draw a caricature of what the people of God would look like, it would look like a bunch of people that are oriented upward, maybe with the Word of God holding right here, with big ears. We should be a listening people. The problem is with our prayer, our prayer lives are often a whole lot more requesting than they are listening. But the people of God should be a listening people who are engaging and listening. I think that's probably the biggest purpose of prayer is not so much to get our requests out there is, is He changes us through prayer and changes us to conform with His will. Now this word here in this passage that we just looked at, this word, uh, I will destroy them with the earth, just happens to be the very same word is the word corruption. It's translated destroy, but it could say corrupt. It's the very same Hebrew word that's a translator's decision to use the word destroy. So it could say, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through him. Behold, I will corrupt them with the earth. Remember what corrupt means. It means disfigure. (laughs) They have become disfigured, so I'm going to disfigure them with the earth. There's something just sort of poetic in that. Let's look at verse 14, chapter 6. It says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with, with lower, second, and third decks. That's, that's as far as we'll look right now. Where else, uh, pretty specific instructions there of how to build this ark. Where else can you think of that God has given specific instructions about building? The temple, and specifically, I'm thinking also of something else the temple and the tabernacle. Yeah, temple and the tabernacle both had very specific instructions. And it's kind of like this ark is sort of like a tabernacle, it's a little place where the people of God are going to survive. The flood survive, life. They're going to be preserved as a remnant as they're engaging God. Something else that kind of points to that. This this picture here of um, it says that it should be covered inside and out with pitch. That word pitch, the root of that word, is actually a word that means ransom and atonement. It's it's um, the the root of that actually points toward this. The stuff that he's saying, slather up the inside of the ark with, and slather up the outside of the ark with, it's almost like that's a sin covering. Later in the Bible, that is the word used for atonement. It's the word is kapar, and their versions. If if you're familiar with one of the Hebrew holidays, it is yom what? Kippur. Their neighbors, their friends, their relatives. Atonement. Slather up the inside of this ark with the, with atonement it's appropriate. And you see God's fingerprints all over stories like this that we've read for ages. Now, the word for ark used here in this story is only used in one other place. Does anybody know where? How did you know that? Oh, man, you cheating. Golly, that's right. That's right. That's okay. You can have notes. Very good. It's the story of Moses. Exodus chapter 2, Verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5, listen to this. I was starting verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it. I wonder if that is with, um, oh, man, look at that. Daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Isn't that just like God? She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. That's another little bitty ark. It's just one, one passenger on that ark, you know? But it's a remnant, and he's preserving a remnant that goes through the, that little miniature flood called the Nile. He's done this before, too. He did it with Moses. He did it with the people of God passing through what? The Red Sea. What other body of water did the people of God pass through? The Jordan. Can anybody think of any other pictures of this? New Testament picture. Yeah, cross is definitely a picture of that. I'm thinking of body, bodies of water specifically. Peter. Okay. Yeah. Who else walked on the water? Jesus. High stepping in the high seas on the Sea of Galilee, crossing over to Capernaum. Passing through the water. And what what other picture is there in New Testament picture? Or what other picture can you think of in New Testament? Baptism. Isn't that just crazy when you start to connect these dots that are all over our Bible? Wait a second. I've never put together the flood and baptism. Moses and his little bitty ark, miniature ark, and baptism. Man, that, that makes for a much robust, much more robust understanding of the thing that many of us have gone through. Hopefully all of us have gone through. It's pretty cool. Okay. Let's go back and look at this, uh, let's look in this passage. What's missing from this ship? Oh, wait, wait, let me, let me just, just this, this thought hit me as I was studying this. Who wrote Genesis? Likely Moses. Yeah, he may have gathered some material, but he's given credit by Christ as being the, at the helm of writing the first five books of the law. Now, in one of those, it says that he was the most humble man on earth. So that's why I think there was an editor that must have added, because, you know, it kind of be disqualified. And I'm the most humble man on earth. Yeah, yeah, and I'll I'll fight for that, argue that to death. But him writing this just made me think about, as he's writing the details about the ark and slather it with pitch, that he must be thinking about his own story and thinking about God's hand, God being on the throne over the ages. How many years before Noah, I mean before Moses, was the flood? It was probably a pretty early story. It had probably been a good period of time. And Moses thinking, man, God has been on his throne for ages. And he will be on his throne. And as Moses is connecting those dots, that's the kind of thing that happens to us when we connect those dots. The incredible strength of piecing these stories together, it will make martyrs of us and ark builders. Now, what's missing from the details of this ship? Got all these measurements and stuff. What seems to be missing? A rudder, man. Where's the rudder? How did you know that? Have, y'all, have you just thought about that? Just occurred to you? I was sitting here thinking, man, there's no rudder? There's, yeah, there's no navigational aids at all. It's okay. I'm going to build this thing, and I'm going to be squarely in the hands of a sovereign God about where I go and actually how this thing unfolds. The fate of the ark is left completely up to God's will. Now, the hero of the Mesopotamian accounts has navigational guys on board, Got a guy that's gonna guide him, you know, and and um get him hopefully through this storm. Now something else that here's here's the, the measurements. Now mine are in cubits here in the ESV, but converted to feet. Does anyone have a one that has the feet? What what do you have there, Holly? The be four hundred and fifty feet long, seventy five feet wide, forty five high. Okay. What is four hundred and fifty feet long compared to a football field? Does anybody know? Huh? One and a half. That's a big old boat. <laughs> that's a big old hunk of wood now. That's huge. That is massive. And here's something else that's this interesting. Uh, the ship in the Babylonia account was a uh, 180-foot cube. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that'll float. Right. That's been passed through some Cub Scouts there. I'm going to guarantee that. A 180-foot cube with four times the tonnage than Noah's Ark. Oh, and he also built it in seven days. Uh, uh, pushed Pretty amazing. Not a very seaworthy vessel. But Noah's ark, on the other hand, floats. This bad boy is the real deal. Now verse 17. It says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, it says the flood of waters there. And something that's interesting, or maybe interesting to you, is in, in the Babylonian account of the flood, the, the flood got so out of control that the actual gods that you remember it was a big secret, and they're tired of the noise and the overpopulation, so this is their answer to that. The flood got so out of hand that those gods actually cowered like dogs. (laughs) It scared them. They couldn't handle it. It was just too much. They were frightened. But our God, on the other hand, is in complete control of this flood. We'll look at more of that later. Let's look at verse 18. It says, but I will establish my covenant with you, Speaking to Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. God makes covenants, and as you'll see in chapter 8, verse 1, where it says he remembered Noah, he keeps covenants. The character of our God is to make covenants and keep covenants. Noah's family is escorted into the protection of this covenant. they sort of under the umbrella of that covenant. It's sort of like Israel's reaping the blessings of God's covenant with who? Abram slash Abraham. Exactly. That's where Israel came from. God makes covenants and he keeps them, and people are groups, whole peoples and families are protected under those covenants. And it's sort of like our blessings under the shelter of a new covenant. Now I want you to pay attention to the early established responsibility of the head of the household. I'm going to read this passage again and think about household. I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. I mean just just here, head of household. Because the way this this verse unfolds, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. This is a picture of a household. I'm going to save and preserve this household, and this really reinforces what God seems to be emphasizing in this people, in this particular people, in this CrossPoint people about this emphasis and targeting the trailer hitches and targeting the, the, the fathers, the shepherds, or the functional shepherds that may be a single mom, targeting you to equip you to engage those families and ready those families for the flood. I was thinking about, you know, I shared this picture on, on Sunday about this picture that I've seen even just in the first couple of years here. I haven't seen much of it in a while, but with mama coming in with a doily covered Bible, and with daddy with his hands in his pocket, no Bible, then wins lunch, that I, I'm going to say, if I'm seeing that, if I'm seeing a doily covered Bible and Dad with hands in his pocket, then I'm seeing a mama that's building the ark with scotch tape and um, a glue gun. She got that glue gun out. She's doing the best she can do, man. She's gluing, gluing everything she can together. And meanwhile, Daddy's sitting back with his hands in his pockets. Or I'm also seeing the picture of the, the, the Passover, the last plague of the Exodus, where Mama's trying to cook the herb-roasted lamb, and then she's also trying to slather up the doorposts all at the same time with a hyssop branch, and she's trying to ready her family for midnight of deliverance. And meanwhile, Daddy's sitting around watching football or something. Not there's anything wrong with, wrong with watching football. but In contrast, the guy with his spiritual hands in his spiritual pockets, that's what it's a picture of. And the picture ought to be, get your hands out of your spiritual pockets and man up. Do you notice also that how he's saving mankind, he's saving mankind by families. He even makes the point, as everybody unloads from the ark, even the critters, he says the critters unload by families. It's this picture of God's hand and emphasis being on families. You can understand, given that, how whole households in the book of Acts would be saved as families. And the whole family was baptized. You see, whole families come into the faith, and so whole families believing. There's no doubt that there's individual responsibility, but there does seem to be an emphasis on family. There's an interesting contrast here, too, with the Babylonian story that adds to the passengers on their little cube boats. (laughs) Their, Their passengers have artisans, boatsmen, other odds and ends, relatives. There's not an emphasis on family. But God's story emphasizes Noah as head of the household and saving the family. In verse 19, we're going to finish up this, this story. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take them with, with, with you, or take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. When I when I thought, read verse twenty two, I thought, man, that just seems to be an injustice to all that Noah did. I mean, Noah did this. That's all he gets is that one little term, little word, this. It just doesn't seem to capture the gravity of the story. The story has been so kidized that we've lost the real gravity of what this must have been like. A year on a closed-up boat with all these animals, with all these feeding, with all this everything to deal with, over a year, and to go through a flood. I was just thinking about years and years of work cutting down trees. Just think about that, cutting down trees. And he's 500-something years old. I mean, he's old, and he's got his three boys helping him. I don't imagine there's anybody else helping. And in fact, not only is nobody else helping, they're probably doing everything they can to sabotage the work. You can imagine the jeers and the joking. Well, these guys are spending years and years cutting down trees, lifting, fitting, shaping, hammering, in the backdrop of jeers and insults. This guy, this Noah, is working in darkness that's growing darker with each hammer blow. I don't know that we've really captured the gravity of it and how difficult it must have been. It must have cost him a fortune. Think about that. He could have built a pretty incredible house with the amount of wood that he used to build the ark. Think of what he could have built with that. Think of all the property and all the herds that he could have built. He could have built quite a mansion in Babylon. Are you connecting that dot from Sunday? God calls out leaders, men, to call the people of God, let's not build mansions in Babylon. Let's go home. Because a mansion in Babylon is like a house built on sand. It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. A mansion in Babylon is, is pretty close to a waste of time. Imagine the house that he could have built. Imagine the garden, the property, the flocks, the herds, the riches he could have saved for his children. And it's funny that they would have all drowned the mansions and all had he not lived for the city to come. And for him, the city to come, he lived for by faith because he didn't see it, just like Abraham didn't see it. But he obeyed what God told him, and he was living for a future city. Do you have any final thoughts, questions, observations? Went over just a couple minutes. All right, we'll dig into this in chapter, if you want to read ahead, chapter 7, next Wednesday night, and uh, we'll see if we can cover a whole chapter on Wednesday night. I think we can do that, because we're going to kind of, as we move through these stories, kind of pick up momentum and speed, and we'll slow down when we need to. But I think chapter 7, we can cover all in one sitting, maybe even part of chapter 8. And we will meet next Wednesday night. The Wednesday night after that is the Wednesday, um, the day after Christmas. So we won't meet then, and we won't won't meet. I think even the next Wednesday. But uh, y'all read ahead in in Genesis, and we'll have a good journey together. Christ, we thank you for our time t- together tonight, Lord. We just appreciate this wonderful picture of um, your hand preserving a people, and. Um, Lord, we just recognize that our cross, or our ark is a cross, and it's by the work of another. And I pray, Lord, that we will bring glory to you in the way that we enjoy that. We thank you for our time together tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.